Hello and welcome to another episode of the Curious Cats podcast with me, Ricky Spears and Chris Wharton. Today's guest is Chris Impey. Chris is a astronomer and we went to meet him with him at the Imperial College in West London, which is right next to the Science Museum. A real cool little hub of, of science over that way. Um, it was a real pleasure to go over there. So thanks again to Chris for your time in having us. This is Chris um, Walton, my co-host. He's one of his, probably his favourite topics. He was really excited about this one. Um, he's quite well read on it as well. So I kind of let him lead the charge on this one. I was just trying to keep up most of the time, to be perfectly honest with you. A uh, little bit different to our normal guests. I like to think of it as in learning about the universe can really kind of make us feel quite small and insignificant in our small little intra-daily problems. So we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We could have had him on for hours more. There's loads more we wanted to ask him, but um, couldn't take up all of his time. There's a tiny little glitch in the in the audio at the beginning of the recording. Um, so apologies about that, but you didn't really miss anything. It was literally just a couple of seconds. So, uh, yeah, please allow Chris to blow your minds. All right, Chris, thanks a lot for your time for coming on. As I just said, Chris is like a kid in a sweet shop today, getting the chance to talk to you about... Stuff. Stuff, all the stuff. Um, I think I'd quite like to start with with a bit about you and where you were born and raised and brothers and sisters and, and where you first kind of remember being fascinated by astronomy I think sure sure yeah well it's a pleasure to talk to you um th- my accent will not give it away but I was born in Edinburgh I'm a Scot oh right and uh and but when we grew up when I went to the US my dad was he was an engineer so he was part of the brain drain that did the space program so he worked for NASA and with NASA contractors and so on so I sort of had a transatlantic childhood hence the accent yeah settled somewhere in the middle of the mid-70s did a PhD in Edinburgh my hometown Um, and then having headed into astronomy sort of glanced upwards and noticed that there are not too many stars visible in the UK so um, thought "Mm, I need to go to a place where it's easier to see the sky the night sky and and after postdocs in uh, Hawaii, which is an incredible place for astronomy, and at a Caltech in LA, um, I ended up in Arizona, where we build telescopes and mirrors and have five mountaintop observatories within an hour's drive, and it's a, and we have three telescopes in Chile, so I go down there to use telescopes. Um, so, you know, I'm a, you're talking about kid in a candy shop, well that's me in Arizona. Yeah. So all the stars, the night sky, the big telescopes. Um, but as for what you also asked, the uh, path to astronomy, it, so in my talking to colleagues, there's two routes to astronomy. You're either a kid you know, who gets a little telescope when you're six or seven and gets hooked on the sky and then just trades it up for bigger telescopes <laughs> until you become an astronomer. Um, but that wasn't me because I lived in cities. I lived almost my whole life in New York, London. The smallest, place, yeah. the smallest place I lived was Edinburgh pretty much. Um, so I never had a night sky, really. Um, and the other way you get into it is physics. So I did physics here as an undergraduate. So physics is the gateway drug for astronomy. Okay, because yeah. It, because <laughs> it says, says, <laughs> says, okay, there are these laws of nature. 
and they don't only describe how matter is put together and how forces work in the universe, but they describe the whole universe and how it functions and how we can understand it. And I was like, wow, as a, as a student, as a 17, 18 year old, that was amazing. The idea that we can conceive of these laws of nature, you know, that we figure out on the earth with experiments and labs and then project them into the universe to describe everything there is in its entire history. That sort of blew my mind. So. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> Very much so. So, um, I mean, we, we're kind of coming at this from layman's terms. And, sure. And so I think um, for the benefit of people listening, um, it's probably beneficial for us to start with some relatively simple topics. Um, the, the, the one thing that, um, that kind of got me into even reading into cosmology more or astronomy was this idea of this just incomprehensibly vast space right. with um, an inconceivable number of potential habitable planets right. and then no one else of any intelligent life form that we, that we, we know, of. Yeah. know of. Right. And that led me to reading into the, the Fermi paradox mm -hmm. and... Um, I read quite a lot into that. I got like, I stayed up for four days straight just reading, reading yeah. around it. I took a few days of work because it was just yeah. blew my mind. I just, just couldn't get my head around it. Um, and I think it's quite. I almost think that everyone should that should become some kind of curriculum to read about like the size and vastness mm -hmm. of the space around us because it's really easy to just get lost in like like the intradaily troubles of just like, right. the, the the politics of daily life. So. That that I think, although it blew my mind, did me quite a lot of good. Um, I suppose my question is: Do you have? I mean, there are these a number of different possible solutions or answers mm -hmm. to this paradox. Um, would you be able to explain what the Fermi paradox is, and then maybe give us your yeah um, version of what sure. is maybe the answer? Sure, and maybe I just back off initially and just say a little bit how we got here you know how did we get to this yeah, yeah. nate this view of a universe where Fermi paradox even is worth talking about yeah um so in very short form because this is like two thousand years of astronomy the whole history of the subject is just you know if it's a, if the universe is sending us a message it's get over yourselves you're not special you know yeah <laughs> and so that's the message of astronomy and it you know it's gone in stages obviously you know the greeks thought the Earth was the center of the universe. It had a crystalline sphere. You know, who knows what that material was supposed to be. And then the stars were just attached to that sphere and it went around us. That's a pretty cozy, small universe. Yeah. They couldn't have imagined anything fast. Um, didn't have the tools to understand it. And then, you know, the Copernican Revolution, of course, says, oh, no, the Earth's not the center. There's a solar system and we're just a planet and we're moving around the sun. But still, it's pretty small. You know, nobody knows where the stars are. It's still a small universe. And then... You know, it's 150 years from the mid-19th uh, century to the end of the 20th century to get the fullness of the universe, you know, Hubble and all these people. So, you know, now we're just a planet, a pretty mediocre planet going around a star, pretty typical star in a galaxy that's a pretty typical galaxy, and there's 100 billion of those in the universe that's incredibly vast. So that's, you know, that took a long time to get there. Mm. And then the piece that you're talking about that's really exciting for most people who don't necessarily care how many galaxies there yeah. are you know I, I, yeah. I, I have trouble with one galaxy yeah. you know what do I how do I deal with a hundred billion galaxies 
so the secret sauce that's been on the table in the last few decade or so is planets elsewhere so you know we always thought the earth was kind of a special place and maybe there was a little sort of egotism in that that we thought you know we're special even though astronomy is giving us the message we're not special in our location well humans seem to be kind of special because we understand all this stuff yeah and we can think about the universe and like you know dogs can't and maybe dolphins can't who knows maybe we're the only species and the rest of the solar system looks pretty dead you know it's like there's nothing much out there so this the hunt for planets around other stars <clears throat> which didn't start until 30 years less than 30 years ago and took a while to be successful has now you know given this deluge of planets and among the planets that they find some of which are big and jupiter-like and not very hospitable are hundreds of earth-like planets and they're not exactly like the earth but they're similar enough they could have water they and these, they, are, these are theories or things we know no these are now things we know so if we're speculating which people did for centuries yeah. you just say the earth is not special there must be other earths out there well okay well i could just say something else you yeah. know so the first exoplanet or planet around any other star was not found until the late 1990s and and as the exoplanets came in they were mostly like jupiter and you know not that interesting for people who care about life but then but that was just because we couldn't measure the find the small ones and so just really starting 10 years ago we started to pull in planets that were earth-sized or earth mass or similar and we still didn't know much about them and still don't know you know we can't say have they got oceans have they got continents and certainly have they got life we can't say any of that but you know that's what the research is heading towards so probably the body count of Earth-like planets, similar to Earth, is a couple of hundred now. And the most important thing is that that's in our backyard. Those are mostly within a hundred or a few hundred light years. Well, the Milky Way is a hundred thousand light years across. So if you do the math and say, well, how many does that project to? It's billions. Yeah. And so, so within and, our galaxy. Yeah, within one galaxy, our galaxy. And so there's the the kickoff for the Fermi paradox because yeah. you've now got real data, real detected Earth-like planets where based on the little you know about them, there's no reason they shouldn't have biology. You know, they have a sun-like star, the temperature is just comfy and you could have liquid water. You've got billions of years for something to happen, you know, so. Is we'll, this, this is that Goldilocks. Right. Is that yeah. the, the term they use for the planets that are just far enough away from right. the star? And, yeah. and that's very, and, and it's important also that that's very conservative. That's taking the most strict version of what's a habitable planet. Yeah. Just, just take the Goldilocks thing. Because on the Earth, you know, there's life deep in rocks. Yeah, yeah, course, there's yeah. life at hydrothermal vents in the oceans where there's no sunlight. So maybe you don't need a star. Yeah. So that's being very conservative to say that. And you still have billions of planets. So, so that's then, of course, begs a question that Fermi asked in 1950, where are they? You know, like if there's all these, and, and, and he asked it way before any of this, yeah. right? When he asked it, we didn't know of planets anywhere else that it was before the space age. We didn't even, hadn't been to the moon. Not, we'd done nothing. He was just yeah. a very smart guy thinking. And he said, and just he used just plausibility arguments to say, well, it's likely that what's happened on Earth is not special. It's likely that there are other places and there's a lot of time. So why should we be the most advanced? Yeah. And if we're not the most advanced, other of these 
hypothetical civilization should have left their planets and traveled around the galaxy. So where are they? You know, and uh, and is there even a nice little story attached to the Fermi? Since we're talking Fermi paradox, there's a great story attached to it. So Fermi was, uh, you know, this primo physicist. You know, he did he did the first um, fusion uh, sort of fission reaction, nuclear reaction, uh, in a squash court at the University of Chicago, and and he he was so. He was so smart as a physicist, his colleagues called him the Pope. It wasn't because he was religious. Hmm. He wasn't. It was because he was infallible on physics. You know, nobody yeah. questioned him. And so he was having lunch in the student cafeteria with a couple of colleagues at the University of Chicago. And just a casual lunch. And they were flipping through a newspaper, the local newspaper. And they saw um, two stories. You know, they, they saw a story where these were, this was like a local paper. And one story... A bunch of youths or hooligans had been stealing the uh, garbage can uh, lids, you know, the aluminum trash can lids, and people were annoyed at that. And then on the adjacent page, there were a spate of UFO sightings in Chicago. <laughs> and so they were just looking at that, and they just started laughing. Oh, yeah, the kids are throwing these lids, and you know, everyone sees them over there out their window and go, oh, UFO, UFO. And so that was just a little joke. And then there was a pause in the conversation. And in a few seconds later, he said, where are they? And his right. colleagues, who were very smart physicists, too, they, they had to catch up with his yeah. thought process. So he'd done all this, you know, and, yeah. and, and said, well, well I agree, man. Yeah. <laughs> so that was how the question was posed for the first time. But long, in 1950, really impressive to, yeah. think, to think that way so long ago. It really is, because, um, I mean, you talk about the, the sort of space age, Mm -hmm. And in your in uh, and is it your most recent book Beyond? No, actually, the oh, one okay. the one that came out a month ago is called Einstein's Monsters. It's right. about black holes. Yeah. So, okay, so good name. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, um, but you go into into depth about the the um, the space race. Yeah, um, and I, I was fascinated by that and the the the, the fact that NASA. I, I didn't. I had no idea the level of funding that they received as a percentage of oh, yeah. the overall the U.S. economy available yeah. money, and how little that has become now. I mean, it was five percent. Is that oh, right? Yeah, Some, yeah, at one point, which was probably unsustainable. It was a crazy amount yeah. of money, and then it's now like less than one half a percent, like half. A percent. Yeah, and I think what's dispiriting to space fans and people who care about space program is that. It, it sunk as it probably had to do from that high level with Apollo uh, to about one percent of the U.S. federal budget in the early mid '80s. But since then, it sunk a factor of two to half a percent. So, yeah. you know, and, and you know, you I'm sure you know people are dinging NASA all the time. Oh, they don't have any vision. They're not doing yeah. anything exciting. Well, you know, they have half the money they had 20 or 30 or 30 years ago, and the hardware is really expensive, and they have to. You know, they're funded with an election cycle. You know, they yeah. don't get a 10 year budget or a, they can't make a 10 or 20 year plan because well, administration no, changes and the, the new president says, Oh, we're going to the moon. Oh, yeah. we're not going to the moon. Yeah. Oh, we're going to go to Mars. Oh, forget that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so NASA, it's even harder for them to predict what to do right now. And now it's yeah. really hard. So, so NASA's had, you know, ups and downs and, you know, some reasonable criticism could be aimed their way. But, um, it's yeah they, their budget is not that impressive yeah. and so of course what we know is that the private sector is stepping up you know because why should just governments do that anyway yeah. why not there's a lot of rich people out there yeah like elon musk elon like musk, uh, yeah. like um jeff bezos two 
space entrepreneurs who are worth a billion. Not, I, I, don't, I think Elon, sure I think Elon Musk's too. worth is a little dodgy right now, right? Yeah. Depend, depend. I mean, Jeff Bezos is, I mean, his net worth now is it's over a hundred billion. Yeah, it's, and it's way over. I think it, it's insane. Yeah. So I didn't realize he was actually involved in. Well, he's Blue SpaceX. Origins. So so you know he's a he's the deadly rival of Elon Musk. So Elon Musk's <laughs> a publicity hound and and a very smart man. Obviously, he has a PhD in mathematical physics. I think so. He's one of the he's a triple threat. You know, he's a an engineer, Clever, a scientist, yeah. and then he's an entrepreneur. I mean, serial entrepreneur. He's, he he knows how to do it. Yeah. Uh, Bezos is much more secretive, of course. And uh, and so Blue Origins, his space company, were very, they were like the dark horse. Nobody even knew what they were doing. They were doing things like buying up disconnected pieces of land in Texas so that nobody knew, in small, medium-sized patches so that nobody knew what they were up to, and then filling, in the, filling in the bits to make this huge a place to do their spaceport under right. shell companies and so on. So, you know, he, he doesn't, he's not wanting to toot his horn he just yeah. wants to do the thing really well and he's got a lot of money so he's got all the money he's got yeah, all the money he's got all this. the money yeah okay it'd be good to get back to that okay. to the um um the space race definitely because yeah. i found that really interesting um but going back to this idea of there being so many habitable, habitable right. planets and then what you know where is where are these right. advanced civilizations uh, and there are a number of possible explanations right. um of which a lot of them sound quite convincing in their own right. I mean, all, all quite plausible. Would you be able to go through a couple of the explanations sure. for people? Sure. So there's uh, there's uh, someone, and I'm not remembering his name right now, um, 10 years ago he wrote a book with 50-plus explanations for the Fermi uh, paradox. And, and just, I think that's the one I read, you know. Yeah, and just and a pedantic, me up pedantic point. <laughs> I have, I've had philosophers, you know, correct me on this and so on. Uh, they, they logicians don't consider it a paradox. You know, paradox yes. is something. Paradox is something that is mutually conflicting within and of itself. So you have a, a serious. I said problem. to Rick on the way up, I was going to question that, but I didn't, right. I didn't want to get buried. No, no. So it's it's formally, I think it's not a paradox. I mean, and as framed by Fermi, it was a question: Where are they? Yeah, yeah. And the fact that there are multiple possible answers some mutually inconsistent and so on and with no evidence to choose between them doesn't make it a paradox it yes, just makes yeah. it a very good question yeah. so it's a well-posed question um so i guess the first t tier of answer is that they don't exist you know why are you expecting this they don't exist we're unique you know and and the you know that sounds unlikely and so you flesh it out by saying well you know look at the earth you know it took we're special we're doing space travel we're sending space probes out but look how long it took look mm. it took four billion years of life on earth and most of the time it's pond scum it's slime yeah, you know yeah. and so you know maybe a different path of evolution and you never get animals or brains or apes or primates or us maybe it's an unlikely thing to happen and so therefore it's a fluke and so you you know you don't have to explain a fluke you just say well we are special you yeah. know maybe there's sure there's tons of habitable planets and all that but look at the earth there have been hundreds of millions of species in four billion years and how many of them can do space travel one yeah so i mean they could they could be billions of planets with life yeah microbes yeah 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 right. and that's the astronomers think that's a likely scenario yeah. so that's one possibility <clears throat> that that we are unique 
and I don't really think that's the best answer because, you know, unique is really, really special. I mean, mm -hmm. and you're talking now about billions of potential biological experiments in one galaxy yeah. times 100 billion for the universe. Yeah. So it seems really, really unlikely on the numbers game that we're the only intelligent civilization in the galaxy even, let alone the universe. So the other, the next drop down a step, the next is, okay, they're out there, but they're incredibly rare. And if they're incredibly rare, the size of the universe kicks in mm. because the distances between habitable worlds with technological civilizations might be really large, like thousands of light years, yeah. tens of thousands of light years. So they're not in our neighborhood and they're, you know, a tenth the way across the galaxy or whatever. So if the galaxy is sort of thinly sprinkled with these civilizations, then they're, you know, they're rare and the challenges of travel are phenomenal yeah, because yeah. we can't travel at anything like light speed and probably won't be able to for a long time. And even sending signals which dilute through space, you know, is very difficult. So if 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 it, if they are out there, but they're very rare, then the challenges of communication, either us communicating with them or them telling us they exist, are really profound. I read um, last night that even to send a signal to our nearest star mm -hmm. um, would would take a, a round trip. Even traveling at that speed would take eight years. Yeah. four years there yeah. or four years back and just to send a signal and that's light if that's you light speed, if yeah. you talk talk about space probes so the breakthrough star shot this high profile project that has stephen hawking involved in others um is to send these little nano oh probes. in a beam of light yeah yeah is well to, right? well it's little 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 micro pro, little probes that are less than a gram yeah. and they have the full electronic package of sensors and so on and then you attach uh, a meter square light sail to them some gossamer thin yeah. mylar type thing and then you use lasers to propel them with the light sail to proxima centauri so to that nearby system yeah and you get to maybe 10 to the speed of light so your eight years becomes 80 years yeah. so it's three generations to do that and that's just the nearest star so we're talking thousands thousands or tens of thousands of years for travel or communication and you know that's not a really realistic way to communicate. No. So, so that's another answer. A, th a third answer is that we're being too anthropocentric. You know, if you take a slightly broader view of intelligence, you could say, well, we share a planet with dolphins and orcas, and you know, they're probably pretty smart. They may even have sentience or be aware of their own mortality. I mean, yeah. I think elephants are. That's, yeah. There's demonstration of that. Or elephants put elephants in the pile. Um, they're not going to have astronomy or spacecraft or know their place in the universe. So this whole connection between intelligence and technology, if, that, if there's a disconnect there, then you could even have lots of intelligent creatures out there that just don't do space travel or don't yeah. know about the universe or communicate. Have radio telescopes, that's a very particular thing to have. Yeah. So well, that's a lot of these mammals have been around for longer than we have. Yeah, and right. And haven't... Right developed a prefrontal cortex that's capable of so those are all i think quite plausible mm. except that we're unique and then the and then there's another sort of little raft of explanations that are that are more along the lines that yes they do exist yeah. mm. uh, but we just don't know about it yet and so you know the one that catches people a particular way is you know the zoo hypothesis the yeah. idea that not only are they out there and know of our existence but they're like watching us you know yeah like fishbowl yeah. that's yeah. the exciting yeah. one yeah 
That's a that's a weird. And then there's a there's a great piece of science fiction from the. I haven't read as much science fiction in the last decade or so, but I I grew up on it. And so there was a the the the, the little teeth to that idea is a thing a book written by uh, Saberhagen Brett Saberhagen in the 70s, 75, I think. He, you know he was a niche, mm. culty science fiction writer, and he wrote a book called The Berserkers. And the Berserkers were an intelligent, advanced civilization that you know roamed around the galaxy and they sort of watched civilizations developing and then they eradicated them when they got on the point of leaving their planet or being you know causing <laughs> potentially yeah. causing trouble yeah. you just squashed you just squelched them i mean yeah. but they'd let them get to that point and so in the berserker version of the zoo hypothesis we're in a kind of dangerous place yeah. don't let them get too smart <laughs> yeah. cute little humans oh they just landed on mars yeah. yeah see ya and i guess douglas adams had a humorous variation yeah. on that too and um the uh, sort of the other side of that would be this simulation theory oh yeah which seems to be quite popular at the moment um, right certainly with people like elon musk bringing these subjects to light and that would be that we are um, in just a computer yeah. game, essentially, like this is a simulation. And I read um, like a number of people are in your industry are like backing that as a potential, as quite a legitimate idea. Is that is that just nonsense? I no, I mean it's not nonsense. It's in, it's very interesting idea. Um, and it's generally it, yeah. it's you know <laughs> it's it's put out there by philosophers who know how to argue. They know the logic, and so that there's nothing logically flawed with the argument. But it makes a couple of very strong premises. So attaching a, pos a probability to that being the case is very difficult. Right. Um, so yeah, it's it's basically the simulation hypothesis is saying the answer to the question where are they is they they are there and they created us. Yeah. <laughs> so where their where their toys or playthings or simulated entities, and the and the basis for the sim the the plausible part of the simulation hypothesis is that if you extrapolate our computational capabilities from where they are now, you know, Moore's law, exponential yeah, yeah, yeah. data rates, and, and and then if you even look at the gamer's version of that, where the veracity and the, you know, the sort of verisimilitude of computer simulations and gaming worlds is getting pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, you know, you'll be tapping wires into your brain so you can you fully experience the game sensor in every sensory way. So if you extrapolate those trends, you can, uh, you know, formally, you can say that if it were possible to reduce human experience to a set of electrical signals, you know, if you just say our brain is an electrochemical network and the sum of all your thoughts and experiences that you've ever had in your life is just some number of electrochemical reactions among trillion neurons, then you can code that, you know, you could store that data, you could digitize it and put it in a computer. And if you had enough com computational power, you could do that for all the humans that have ever lived, which isn't that many more. It's only a factor of a few more than the number of people alive right, right now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's called, in, and in this little niche field, that's called an ancestor simulation. So the people who put this out there say, well, just look, you know, probably within a century, we'll be able to make an ancestor simulation, which is a fully credible simulated experience of all the people that have ever lived in in a computer and so why couldn't that have happened to us and, yeah. we're, and we're it and this is an interesting premise yeah 
so it's, it's in my top three yeah it's, yeah. it's definitely yeah. and then and you know and all the little get outs for it are easily answered you yeah know? it's not like the matrix it's not there are no, no glitches in the matrix i mean this is not crappy microsoft programming or apple glitchy software yeah. this is a really good simulation right they're, yeah. they're more advanced than us so there's no way you'd know you're in a simulation it's a perfect simulation yeah um there are little twiddles to the idea such as to amuse themselves the simulators might mix real creatures in with the simulated entities so we may be in a world that's mostly simulated with a few real flesh and blood I'm on to you. Yeah. one of them creatures. Yeah. Then there's another layer of this. Oh, oh, this is this is the kind of thing philosophers stay up at night about. Um, they the philosophers have written academic papers on how you should act if you think you live in a simulation because you yeah. might think off the top of your head you might think off the bat, well, it doesn't matter. You know, I should just, I could go around and kill people and be a mass murderer because it doesn't matter. Right, it's a simulation. Yeah. Why should I behave? If you truly believed it. Yeah. It's dangerous. And actually the logic is too complicated to, to explain and it was dozens of pages but basically the philosophers have gone through a, a thought process whereby you would even in a simulation you should operate according to a golden rule you should sort of you know you should have a moral code yeah, yeah, yeah. even if you're in a simulation they might you might argue that you should act you know you don't want to be written out the next out of the next version so you might want to act a little interesting you know like yeah you don't want to be too boring but anyway, so so it's it's kind of a funny thing, and I don't know that scientists take it that seriously, because uh, how do you prove it? Um, yeah. So you know, Musk is into this theory. Um, I, I I think he has spoken. Yeah, about he's it, spoken actually. about yeah. it. It's a kind of idea that appeals to him. Yeah. Correct. So it's definitely in the mix, as a response to where are they? Um, I'm not sure yeah, it's in your top three. I think it's in my top three just because it's so clever and sexy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and how do you refute it? It's very interesting to have something that outrageous that it's very hard to refute. Disprove, yeah. yeah. So I think it's, it's up there just for that reason. Yeah. Um, another one I was particularly fond of, isn't as exciting, um, but was it sounds to me quite fairly plausible, and that is that um, that we there could have been an advanced civilization that has managed to travel interstellar mm -hmm. and has made it to here, mm -hmm. and that's either sort of left us here on purpose to develop, right. or or that it was a mistake, mm -hmm. they contaminated the planet right. or, or something along those lines, um, or or alongside that that um, the space is so big. And mm -hmm. so vast that they may have been here. It's been, sorry, so old that they may have been here before right. another civilization looking for intelligent life. But even a thousand years ago, or sorry, even ten thousand years ago, it wouldn't. They wouldn't have been able to communicate with us. Right. Or would it have been worth them disrupting? Yeah. That it might. They might have been here too soon. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's another. Yeah, a little category of explanations and it's um it's a little related to the zoo hypothesis but it plays out in the past um yeah that uh or or that if they didn't create us in a simulation sense that they seeded life on earth that it was you know that life on earth was an experiment yeah of another civilization they're just for their amusement they're seeding life on planets because 
we're going to probably do that when we start traveling beyond the solar system or even Mars. You know, we might try and see life on Mars, mm. starting with microbes and to see what happens. Um, so I don't know about that one. Um, again, I quite like that one more than we're being tricked in some simulator. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it's more, I think it's more probable in that sense. So I guess the other category, just to go to a different category of explanation, which kind of beats against that one, is... And the critiquing of some of the spermy question answers is they're too anthropocentric. They're too, they're too focused on us and our capabilities and yeah, our interests. Like we and are so, special, yeah. So the, so the two related answers to Fermi's question, which are based on the fact that, yes, they do exist, are that they're inscrutable uh, or they're incomprehensible. I mean, they're, yes. all, they're not the same thing, but they're related, which is that, you know, if they are... If we are not the first uh, to get to this stage of development and intelligence, then we're almost certainly not the most advanced. And if we're not the most advanced, what does a lot more advanced look like? Yeah. And so the analogy people would use is, you know, uh, if they are to us as we are to yeah. microbes, you know, it's not a conversation you could have. So when we start traveling around other these exoplanets, you know, the ones that are Earth-like, and we get very disappointed because we send astronauts there eventually, and they go down with their tricorders or whatever, and they look at the rocks and they see, oh, lichen on a rock, you know, it's not very interesting. They just record it and then move on. Yeah. Well, the alien, yeah, yeah, the aliens came here, saw our civilization, you know, our skyscrapers, our cars, and just say, just say, hmm, lichen, hmm, yeah, (laughs) okay, move on. So that's that's if they're that advanced as we might be because there's no reason we should be the most advanced, then why are we even interesting or relevant to yeah. them? Uh, and then also they could be inscrutable because communication. So sitting behind the Fermi question is, how would you communicate? You know, there's, could you travel and could you know about other life in the universe? But then it's all really about communication at some level. And communication is exceptionally unlikely yeah. in any scenario. Cause you know, we have, can't we, even communicate with the other mammals yeah, on our Right, planet, we share yeah. 98% of our yeah. DNA with chimps or apes and we can't communicate with them. That's the same biology. And yeah. these you're talking about different biology, alien biology, yeah. alien function and form. So, which, which we have no idea what no, form that would take. No. So they, again, they could be inscrutable in that sense. Inscrutable to communicate, inscrutable to recognize how they're organized or what the basis of their intelligence is or what it, you know, what do you, how you even define it. Yeah. So this this was this kind of blew my mind as well. The, this concept of the type one, type two civilizations yeah. and right. Dyson spheres and right. that I couldn't get my head around right. that, Chris. That blew my mind too much. No. So this idea that they are harnessing energy from you know, we are so far behind that concept that they are har- mm-hmm. harnessing energy from the sun. Is that right? Yeah. So and we're they build us. They would build a sphere. Right yeah, there. we intercept no, uh, <laughs> at the the Earth at its distance from the sun intercepts about a billionth of the sun's radiation. Energy, yeah. And and if we were doing really well in the future, we might ha- convert ten percent of that into usable power for a civilization. We don't. We're not even close to that now. So that's a ten billionth of the sun's energy. Well, if you're a smart civilization, you get much closer to the sun, build this Dyson sphere, which is just an energy trapping sphere that you can pipe it or beam it to where you need it. And you're suddenly 10 billion times more energy to use. So that's how inefficient we are. Now, the counter to that, which, you know, I've read articles that 
that that even that is sort of anthropocentric or too much you know because we're a energy hungry and very inefficient civilization right, and yeah. the argument would be well if you're really advanced you're going to be e exceptionally efficient with energy and and it's maybe you're looking for the wrong thing yeah you know, why would a you know there's a civilization it's not all about how much you yeah can the civilization you can exactly yeah. a civilization of the future will be able to harness gravity power and energy mm. in all sorts of forms and use it for their own means and they won't need to voraciously suck every photon out of a star well, that's so 21st century you know <laughs> so so i most of those kind of arguments can be critiqued too or here's another one that people don't often play with the time axis so remember the star the classic star trek you know and i'm a I'm an originalist when it comes to Star Trek. Yeah, I mean, I like Next Generation. I like yeah, Next yeah, Generation, yeah. but none of these new films. In the original one, um, there was an episode where there are these. There's a civilization that whose metabolism was incredibly fast. Okay. And so, to the people on the bridge and around the Enterprise, they just hear this buzzing. You know, there's this yeah. weird buzzing in their noise, and it was only in some stop motion later scene where you realize that there's this these entities they're humanoid but they don't have to be that were metabolizing and living their lives on a super fast clock and so they were inscrutable and you could have it in the other direction you could have a, a civilization you know the universe is really old There's, you've got billions or trillions of years to play with in the future you know what's the hurry so you have a civilization yeah. who, who's functioning and whose uh, activities take place on glacial time scales we wouldn't recognize i guess you could say the same with size couldn't you yeah. they could be like just yeah. nano sized that's right life forms they could be here right now and we wouldn't yeah we wouldn't know damn <laughs> is there uh is there other theories that what if we are the most advanced life form in the universe and what if we found life forms that were actually generations behind us and they mm -hmm. weren't as advanced as that is that is that ever thrown about that we are the most yeah advanced? i mean it's sort of back to that it's back to that it's back to that first yeah it's back to that first answer of what we're unique or close to unique like we are it that we're it as far as this goes or intelligent civilization technology i mean i mean i guess you can make that a good story you could say well we have a little obligation you know if we do find we're sort of special in the end in the universe in terms of biology we should at least get it right you yeah. know <laughs> I bought a a, um, a picture to go in my hallway recently of that that Carl Sagan photo. Mm -hmm. Is it the the photo from the Voyager? Was it the Voyager? Oh yeah, yeah. With the pale blue pale dot. Pale blue dot, yeah. And that blue. Have you seen this? No, I'll, I'll show it to you on the way home. But that kind of puts things in perspective a yeah. bit more about how insignificant we are. What it's is just it? a tiny, the tiniest of blue dots on. I think it's in a, like a beam of sun. Yeah, it? it's it's sort of backlit on one of Saturn's rings. So, it's, uh, it's, right. so it, it was Voyager when it got to Saturn looking back towards the Earth and it just happened, just a coincidence of placement, that the pale blue dot of the Earth is behind one of Saturn's rings so you see it it's through this up, veil yeah. lit up, it's beautiful. There's wow. um, a really like powerful quote that Sagan wrote with it, yeah. it about how just everyone you've ever known loved, every right. criminal, every hero, every, like every king every peasant yeah. right all lives on this tiny like pale blue dot and it's like oh shit yeah and he's and also I was moaning about like dropping a yogurt early <laughs> <laughs> and he's also putting into perspective or he's you know he's also casting a light in that quote on 
you know how kind of venal and petty and yeah. warmongering we are and you know like we're not that impressive really yeah you know? grow up yeah especially. Grow up. Yeah. well and if we don't grow up we sort of know what's going to happen yeah you know? so th- that's the idea of this is it called the great barrier or like there's barriers yeah. to like that we the, the, the great filter yeah. the great filter sorry yeah. that was it that we we may there may have been more intelligent life forms previous to us mm-hmm. and that once we get to a certain level of um advancement that we either kill ourselves or we yeah. hit by a meteor or you know that there's there, there's only so far we can go and that traveling at interstellar speeds just might not be possible yeah and if we find microbial life in a, a number of other places which could happen in the next decade or so you know that's starting to look bad for us because it implies that if there's a filter it's ahead of us yeah or, we could be where we are yeah, yeah, yeah i mean close and so you know and in the drake equation which you know sort of connects the fermi question the sort of factors that lead to how many of these communicable intelligent civilizations there are the last factor is the lifetime in that state and the number of pen pal you know the number that feeds into fermi's question whether it's a huge number or one us is completely depends on l the lifetime you know it's n equals l and frank drake who you know framed the drake equation he's now in his mid 80s still pretty active um his license plate in california is n equals l which is number of intelligent communicable civilizations equals the lifetime of any one of them and so if it's a hundred years you know where by technology you're talking space travel computers and so we're still under a hundred years for that and if then and if you extinguish yourself or go unstable and it's all over in a hundred years typically then there's only a hundred in the whole galaxy and then the scarcity one you know that's almost that's close to being unique so everyone pays attention to that part because that's sort of the whole game how long do you persist and then on the other end of the spectrum if an intelligent civilization gets it right and becomes long-term stable then they essentially are eternal you yeah. know and the galaxy is their playground and everything is their playground you know because they don't have to worry about their sort of immortality yeah uh, this um the idea also that if there are a number of intelligent uh, of like these type two civilizations or t- type one even mm-hmm. what, what would we be we're type, type nothing type we're, we're, we're type one and it, we're, type, like we're one nearly or, one we're like yeah, yeah, point yeah. seven or point or eight if, if they had um built technology that could self-replicate this yeah. is it the von Neu- neumann probes right von something probes von neumann, there, yeah that that they could build technology that self-replicates and that could so say you sent a probe to a planet which self-replicated and then sent it to more that 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 mm-hmm. exponential growth right. of the, that they could colonize the right. galaxy quite quickly and that was Actually. a part of that was a part of fermi's logic uh it, you know von neumann there's a connection there von, von neumann johnny von neumann is you know almost the founder of the theoretical ideas of computer science in the 1950s he worked at princeton he was you know a certifiable genius as was Fermi so they were colleagues in a, at different universities but working at the same time and so von Neumann um, you know he basically put down the groundwork for modern computer science but he had all these ideas and so one of his ideas was that that he just again 1950 you know the computers are the size of a small house and yeah. it's hard to imagine yeah, I mean, where we are now but that. he was still in terms of robotics and technology he was still just projecting that 
eventually we'd be able to make machines that could replicate themselves and they could do it on asteroids by mining material on the asteroid just like mm. we mine yeah. metals and so on and you know if the energy is there cheap from the star um they can replicate it exponentially and then just propagate out through the galaxy and then you can you know if you do it with these miniature probes that can go quite fast you could propagate your probes through the galaxy in five or ten million years which is nothing compared to the age of the galaxy is nothing and they can all and assuming there's some master civilization that started all this that civilization will get the information back faster at light speed and in the galaxy that's tens of thousands of years again almost nothing so that becomes part mm-hmm. of the fermi question well where are they you know yeah. if if there are pe- if we are within a century of doing that ourselves then it must yeah. have happened somewhere else so why hasn't it happened and why don't we know about it and then you have to reach for the other answers like well we just don't know about it they're in undetectable because they didn't want to be detected so it's like a zoo hypothesis so all these answers start to get connected yeah. in some way. What what's what is there to say? And you might completely shoot me down on this, but why, why does why do we have to be looking for life on planets? Oh, we don't. So that's a good supposition. Um, so I, I think it's just because we spent so long not knowing if there were even planets around other stars, and we still don't know if there's life on any of them. The astronomers were. I think rightly being fairly cautious and conservative. So they use this Goldilocks idea, but that's clearly wrong because in the solar system, just our solar system, there's, there are actually almost a dozen moons of giant planets um, that could have microbial life because Mm. far in the outer part of the solar system, um, even a moderate sized moon titan is that's one of them, yeah titan it? well so the ones that are famous and we have explored a little are titan and europa mm. so titan around saturn and europa around um jupiter but there's another set of moons that are not as well known some around uranus and neptune that are likely to have liquid water under icy rock crust so it's kept liquid by internal heat from the rock and pressure from above and it doesn't matter what the sun is the sun's you know billions yeah, of no, miles yeah. away so you could definitely have microbial life in those situations and that and that that's a dozen you know of order 10 habitable spots in the in the solar system not just earth yeah so um so yes there are definitely you could broaden the envelope of what is habitable inside rock under an ocean on a small body that has a carries its little environment with it um and then there's the more wild stuff like life with a different architecture yeah so fred hoyle you know famously wrote the black cloud mm. the dark cloud or the no the dark cloud uh 1957 i think i mean it was zero spawn the um and that's the idea of an interstellar cloud where we already knew there were molecules even back in the 50s and 60s mm. You know, there's alcohol and acetylene and hydrogen sulfide and carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, etc. There's dozens of molecules. And so his science fiction premise was that in this dark cloud, over eventually over time, molecules get more complex, just as they did on the Earth yeah, yeah. in water. Right. It takes a very long time in space because the density is low, but so what? You know, there's plenty there's of time. Plenty of time yeah. And then eventually you get some amorphous, quasi-organized life entity in a cloud in an interstellar cloud and you don't need a planet you don't need a star you don't need a rocky surface you don't need any of that and nobody 
you know, he didn't, it was science fiction. He didn't intend it as a real hypothesis, yeah. but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> that, that kind of leads me on in my head, which mm -hmm. is just jumbled full of mainly nonsense, um, to black holes. Mm -hmm. And the, and I, I know that's an area that you're um, familiar with, like yeah. specialised in, should I say, not yeah. familiar with. Yes, yeah, so um, the last book's predominantly about black holes. Just about black holes, yeah. yeah. Big and small. There's all sorts of black holes. Um, and the, the possibility of there being like some kind of advanced life form there, but that's, is that just nonsense? Have I just made that up? Well, so what I in in the <laughs> book, like no, I mean it's it's a, it's out there in the speculation, but it's not unreasonable speculation. So in this book, I talk about black holes, the dead star kind, and the huge huge kind that we have in the center of galaxies, which most people are not as familiar with. So mm -hmm. there are there are black holes ten billion times the mass of the sun, lurking in the center of big galaxies out there. Um, and it, I think at the in the end of the book, when I was just talking about the future of the universe and black holes. Um, I sort of lay out a scenario. I don't think I'm the first to do that. Where, if you are a civilization in the in the future universe, there is a time when all the stars will be dead, and that's you know that's not really speculation. That's just the physics of stars, yeah. and the fact that the fuel is finite says eventually all the stars will die because the because you know, for two reasons. First of all, you know you can't go back once a star dies and leaves a corpse. That's the end. And second, the universe is getting bigger. To new ones not constantly falling. yes they do but uh the expansion of the universe means that the material to form new stars is diluting and dispersing okay. so eventually the cycle of birth and death will be broken it'll oh, it'll this quench is, this is where i get freaked out it will take hundreds of billions <laughs> of years the table now. so if you fast forward the universe you'll be really old by then right? <laughs> yeah i mean the universe is 75 13 14 billion years old so you fast forward a trillion years all the stars and all the galaxies will be dead. They'll be just stellar corpses and there's no new ones. There's just nothing to make them out of. And then in that scenario, what would a civilization do? Suppose there's life in that universe even then. Well, it's kind of antiquated and romantic to say you need a star, a shining star. Well, yeah, that's, yeah. Just, that's so 21st century. Why yeah, would you care? Disney. You just need energy, right? And so the best form of energy is gravity power. And the best source of gravity power is a black hole because it has the most intense gravity and because they'll be the last intact objects in the universe in the very, very, very far future. So in the end of this book, I play out a scenario where a super advanced, super long-lived civilization uh, of the very, very, very far future is sit hunkers down near black holes to extract their rotation energy, their gravity power, and they have to end up there because in the, as well as we know physics, eventually the universe is going to dissipate in a sort of heat death. So that was Eddington, that's thermodynamics. The, you know, second law of thermodynamics is, is a bitch. You know, it just yeah. says it's I've always said that. So it just says it's all. I don't think Eddington said that, but he, he, he could have. Um, and however, in that universe of that far future where everything's dissipated, I mean, atoms disintegrate, you know, protons are not stable eventually, we think. So it's just a, a, a thin, diffuse soup of very low energy photons and positrons and neutrinos and antineutrinos, etc. But black holes are the last things in the universe. And Hawking said they eventually they evaporate. So even they don't live forever, forever, but they live in an incredibly long time. So this, the final civilizations of the universe will be hunkered down near black holes 
surviving for a very, very, very long time that way. It's just blowing my mind a bit. Um, because the, my perception of what a black hole is and has always been, like, I, I guess from the images that we see in the media, yeah. like mm -hmm. the media, the popular image is just this hole that's just sucking everything right. in. Um, so, could you can you like give me a, like a simple explanation as to what a black hole actually is? Because as far as I know, that there, there is, I, I know a little bit about it from just what I've read mainly through your books or, sure. or any other popular like um, astrology book, um, astronomy. Sorry, I know that's a bad mix up. It's okay. Um, <laughs> that there is this um, event horizon. Is yeah. that right? And that's like the outer. Mm. ring of the black hole so to speak right then what <laughs> so I, in a sense black holes are, are really simple objects physically they're simple so I mean first of all what they are are there any situation uh, where mass has got so dense that the escape velocity is the speed of light so that's just a definition so escape you just velocity I don't understand well escape so, so if you get away from it if you were uh, if you were in any object with gravity you know, and you toss something up in the air, it'll come back down. Right. Newton's apple comes back down. But if you send it at 11 kilometers per second, forget about the air for a minute, it'll go forever and leave. So it's the escape velocity. Okay. And so the bigger the object, the higher right. the escape velocity. If you're on an asteroid, you know, you, you might actually be able to, a, hum, a person might actually be able to toss a ball high enough to leave forever because the escape velocity is that much lower. Right. So a black hole is just, it, it, the same idea taken to a point where the escape velocity is the speed of light and since nothing can go faster than that that means nothing can escape and light can't escape either so it's black so that's the simplest way to understand it right so so but the object that you're saying that is so big or is it big or dense that is it's too, dense. too dense it's the density that matters so in, and in principle anything can be a black hole so the black holes that we've already found are star sized which means a, a something the size of the sun, which is, you know, radius of seven hundred thousand kilometers, shrinks to a few kilometers across. Then That's that a, then it's a black hole. Right. Sun won't do that. But if it were crushed that much, if you took the Earth to this size, it size would of a uh, golf ball, yeah. size of a golf ball. It would be a black hole. So anything can be a black hole if you crush it enough. So there, so there, this is hard to comprehend. But there yeah. are things that are like peat. Something could be pea-sized, but so dense mm -hmm. that not, not even light, light can escape, right. and that is essentially a black hole. That's essentially a black hole. Now, in Understood. the now in the universe, no, so in physics, in the theory, you can hypothesize any kind of black hole if it if it's has enough mass in a smaller region and light can't escape. Black hole. What does nature make? Well, we've proven that nature makes black holes that are a few times the mass of the sun because when a very dense, a big star, not the sun, but one, say, ten times more massive, dies, gravity just crushes it down until it's a black hole. Okay, so we know those exist. That was how we found them in the 60s, 70s. And then more surprisingly, in the last few decades, we've also found that there are huge black holes in the center of every galaxy. So these are from a few million up to a few billion times the mass of the sun. But same idea. They're just regions of space. A few where billion size times, times the mass. Yeah. Huge. So galaxy mass black mm. holes. And that was a surprise when that first happened. But we've known about that for a few decades. Actually, that's part of why I wrote my book, because 
most people are, are unaware of that part. You know, they yeah. know, they know, oh yeah, dead stars could be a black hole, you know, that's right. That's how, that's how we thought about black holes. But there are these huge ones that are really the same type of object, just scaled up, just huge. Super massive. Super massive. And then the question of what happens, what about the low end? You know, could you have an earth, a, you know, a golf ball, black hole that was made by an earth crushing down? And in principle, yes, you could, you could have small ones, but we haven't found a way in nature that they happen. You know, there's no physics, astrophysics right. mechanism to take a planet and crush it to the size yeah. of a golf ball. So we don't think nature makes black holes that small. But they could exist. They're, they're yeah. not. They're not ridiculous. Nature's got bigger things to deal with. They got. They're bigger. Yeah. So black holes are bigger. Actually, in cosmology, there's a, a little, you know, esoteric part of the subject that speculates that in the early universe. When just after the Big Bang, when things were very hot and very dense, you could actually have made small black holes. Right. They're called primordial black holes. So people are excited theoretically about that. Oh, we could have had these tiny black holes. Um, Hawking's theory says they would have evaporated by now, so they're not still here because they all radiate and evaporate. The big ones last, you know, essentially forever. So that's a black hole, and then the the black hole only has two attributes. It has the event horizon, which essentially defines the boundary between the stuff that's stuck in there forever, and you can't see it, and you don't know what it is, mm. and the rest of the universe. And then in the center, by the theory, there's a thing called the singularity, and that's why I call, in my book, I call it Einstein's monsters, because the theory, general relativity, predicts that at the center of a black hole is like a cusp of density, infinite density. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense in yeah. physics. So, But that, that's what the theory says. So Einstein, for example, he didn't think they were real. I mean, he saw that his theory could predict black holes, but Einstein didn't think that they, they existed in the universe because he thought the singularity was nonsensical. Right. And, and other physicists, kind of is, other physicists did think that too. And it is. Yeah. It's not. A, it's a problem, and it means that the black hole theory is not complete. It means we're not done with trying to explain black holes because the f singularity is a problem. That's annoying. Yeah, it's very <laughs> annoying. I mean, Hawking spent a lot of time trying to understand that. I mean, all the clever black hole theorists for the last half century have been bashing their heads against yeah. that one. But you need a new theory of gravity. It's not a simple. You don't need a new theory of black holes. The theory of black holes says. There's an event horizon, there's a singularity, get over it. You need yeah. a better theory of gravity. One thing that must be quite, um, like, that makes it so exciting is that it's almost like, do we have any business knowing all of this? Yeah. You know, like, I, I kind of think, are, or are we able, to, are we capable of comprehending the actual right. reason? I, I mean, I, I, I know you might be Rick. <laughs> yes. Um, no, I not. not us normal people. Um, yeah. And I think that I felt like that oh, I feel like that with all of this as a, mm -hmm. as a topic but the idea that like the Big Bang for example and the idea the concept of time mm -hmm. is really hard f for me to get my head around that yeah. there, there was nothing before right. and there is nothing outside this ever expanding universe and I've tried to read around it and right. still that, that it's still difficult to grasp it doesn't go and I don't know if I don't know if there's an easier way of explaining that that well, I mean, this that's another good example because the, you know, physicists or astrophysicists, you know, they've done a lot of clever theorizing and explaining of the universe. But, you know, the truth is we don't know everything and a little humility is in order. Mm. So that 
bad example with black holes just says we're not there yet we don't yeah. understand we don't really understand black holes because there's this, this nonsensical thing happens at the center so your theory is not right something's wrong um with the universe it's the same thing the big bang only is a theory to describe what happens from an initial very dense very hot state it doesn't say what caused it how yeah, it happened yeah. what's outside it all those things natural questions you know the theory sorry yeah we don't know we don't know and that's kind of okay right and that's well it sort of just has to be okay well, yeah. yeah so you try and find a better theory or a bigger theory that includes the why and the what's outside yeah. and the what was it like before and what does it mean if time starts with the big bang what does time mean before so yeah. a related question so all those questions are not answered by the big bang theory you know and physicists and astronomers they're just pragmatic. They just say, well, okay, this theory is very good. You know, it explains an awful lot of what happened over the last 14 billion years. We're not going to toss it out because it doesn't answer explain those questions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll just try and reach for a bigger and better theory that even might explain some of that stuff. And, of course, the theorists, the smart people in the math and physics world are spending time trying to do that. Yeah. Meanwhile, I, all the people doing the science are quite happy working with the Big Bang model because of all the things it does explain. Yeah. And we're happy, even though we don't understand black holes totally, the people who are studying black holes are just busy trying to do experiments. They say, okay, let's see if we can take a picture of an event horizon because you've never done that. Our mm. event horizon's real. Let's take data. Mm. Nobody's ever done that. That would be cool. Um, how big can black holes be? How did they form? Did stars... Did you get the black hole before the star or after the star? Are there primordial? You know, so there's tons of stuff you can do with the theory, yeah. even if it isn't perfect. Yeah, you're complete. busy. You've yeah, got, you've got stuff to do. you got stuff to do. <laughs> yeah, you're not waking up bored. Now, I don't wake up most mornings and think, oh, shit, what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how much of um, what we know has come from the experiments around particle acceleration and the, um, what's the, the, one, the, the one in Europe? Yeah, the, the LHC, the Hadron oh, Collider. Yeah. So that is a that's been a very fruitful um, connection between physics and astronomy. So, but it it's and it's relatively recent. So I would say until the late seventies and early eighties, physics and astronomy were really different things. You know, and cosmology even whatever. The astronomers were people who used telescopes, and you know, we were an expanding universe, and and they started to think, well, there's some dark matter, and we don't understand, and and so on. And physicists were just what's matter made of and why are the protons and what's in, you know yeah. and they were really doing different things different tools Someone different needs to get these guys together <laughs> and it started to happen in the late 70s of i think the very first conferences that brought those people together were then and and now it's now it's a huge as it's late called, 70s late the first communications the were happening ago, is it and then and now it's called astroparticle physics so it's a big huge field you know big conferences hundreds of researchers people talk to each other all the time they have a common language and the reason is well there's several reasons but one obvious reason is that as you put if you push the big bang model back to the origin you're eventually in the realm of particle accelerators yeah, yeah, you're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. You're, you're talking about a physical situation that can only be approached by an accelerator and of course eventually you could go back in time to the point where we can't even simulate that on the earth so these two things have to inform each other the big bang and the nature of matter fundamentally have to be related in that way yeah. and so you can study them in similar ways by astronomy and by particle physics um and so and then dark matter is another example because in astronomy dark matter emerged as a thing where 
how we look at galaxies and the way they rotate and the, they're held together by stuff that's more than all the stars we can count up. You know, it's pretty simple math. You know, you look at all the stars in a galaxy, just not ours as well, but all the other ones, and you figure out the gravity of all those stars. It doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. The galaxies should not, it should fly apart or it shouldn't be intact. So there's this dark stuff. That, that's all you know about it. It's mass that's not lighting up or interacting this with light. This is confusing as well. Right. There's dark, dark matter, yeah. and dark energy. Right. It? But, so, but the dark matter is like 60 or 80% right. of... Yeah, yeah. So, so, so this was an interesting, this was a point of connection. So the two fields started talking to each other in the 70s and 80s because of the Big Bang and that logic. But dark matter actually accelerated the, these two fields combining because dark matter astronomers just thought it's dark stuff, we don't know what it is. Yeah, that would have been um, my answer. Mean, but, <laughs> mean, but meanwhile, they'd been doing this process of elimination. So astronomers had started to say, okay, well, we don't see it, but what what isn't it? Let's rule stuff out. And the most obvious dark things are planets or asteroids or black holes. Or, mm. and, and so astronomers were able, cleverly with satellites and telescopes, to essentially rule out all the dark objects down to dust particles. You know, They could rule out all these things from black holes down to microscopic dust particles. And so the astronomers are going, whoa, we don't know what it is. And, and really all that's left is a subatomic particle to be the dark matter, lots of them. Mm. Meanwhile, in physics, which hadn't been talking to astronomy, people looking at the standard model of particle physics, the, the idea of the suite of particles and how they work, their, their best attempt to do a better fundamental theory of matter involved invoking particles that could be the dark matter for astronomers. So these two sides looked at each other and thought, oh shoot, you're talking about something that yeah. could solve our we're onto, problem. We're onto something. So they now all go to each other's meetings and it's, it, no, but still haven't answered the question. We still don't know what dark matter is, but it's very exciting because both, <laughs> both sides think they're onto something. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the most recent update on all this is that astronomers, nobody's discovered the dark matter particle. Let's just say that it's supposed to be a subatomic particle. And a, a little bit of a problem for an embarrassment for this field is that the last few years of work at CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, have have started to make these theories that predict a dark matter particle not viable. So it's like, oops, <laughs> you know, our, ne our neat little explanation where the particle physicists were going to find a particle with their accelerator that explains the astronomer's missing mass or dark matter problem, that's not it's not, what, it's not uh, playing no, out very well. Disaster. No. How long ago was it built? LHC, well, CERN, I mean, the first accelerator was in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So they've sort of retrofitted their big tunnel. I mean, their big tunnel's like 26 kilometers across. Yeah. And over, the, they've done, you know, because it's incredibly expensive to build that tunnel, you kind of keep retrofitting it with bigger magnets, yeah. and so they've got more. The, the funding for it is done like by as like a percentage of like it's isn't it like people don't all the European yeah. yeah it's a it's a it's a treaty so yeah and that's another little headache of Brexit because the Brits don't know how we'll be part of these treaties yeah for f paying for that kind of thing because UK has been a pretty significant collaborator yeah. in CERN. It's a shame, isn't it? Because the um, all of this like space travel the, mm -hmm. the, and research and NASA everything needs funding yeah. it all needs money and and at what point um, I know that in the after the 
the moon landings mm-hmm. and in the 60s onwards people were get, getting a bit there was a bit of despair wasn't there about the amount of money being spent yeah. and like what's really what's it really getting us right and the like almost the peacock in between the russians and the, mm-hmm. the states as to you know who gets there first or right. achieves things first and then and and then people started to say well what what's the point you know right. um which is seems like um a huge shame in that at some point aren't we going to have to do this mm-hmm. if we want as a as a civilization to survive are we not going to yeah. have to leave this planet i mean eventually for sure i mean very long term the sun will burn hotter and the biosphere will be toasted i mean you know we're having our own problem with the biosphere right now but in the long term astrophysics will cook us on the earth we'll have to do something um so yeah i mean that's feels like we should be hedging our bets sooner than that though right i mean the problem the problem is of course the the cost of getting more than the tiniest fraction of humanity off the earth is phenomenal so yeah this is nothing that is going to happen even in decades that i guess that length of time and the price is like yeah it's, it's not something i mean in the end you're still better off fi- either fixing the earth or retreating into bubble dome habitats where you right you, you know i mean there's that's still cheaper than shifting off to mars so what what why why do you we feel like we have to leave any i mean there is an element of curiosity f- for humans right. right that that you know yeah. b- because I, I mean i read in your book like there were why didn't we just stay living in like a nice like nice yeah. habitat nice weather like temperate yeah. climate why did we as a, as a species why did we migrate south and right. like you know why do that and you mentioned about um like a, a gene, oh, yeah. seven, seven yeah. R was it or seven? Yeah, they explored. Yeah. Uh, they explored, which gene. was really interesting to me because yeah. because you you link that in with um, people who suffer with ADHD. You mentioned right. that, and I have it really really right. bad ADHD, and yeah. um, and so I'm going to use that now. And so does an and so does thank you. And so does Richard Branson, and, and he's a space pioneer Don't tell him too. That. <laughs> yeah, I, he reminds me a lot of myself. Yeah. but so, so yeah, I mean, the question I guess was like when, when you say about um retreating into these like, right yeah why why do we have the urge to explore well i mean it's it i don't think it's a little simplistic to say it's an explorer gene that genetics is too complicated question, for that Rick. but <laughs> but it's still a valid research i mean the the research that i think i alluded to was also is there's a study of an ethnographic study of migrating humans over the history of in the last few thousand years and they've you know with residue dna of their modern ancestor you know progeny they've shown that the incidence of this explorer gene correlates with the length of their migrations yeah. so you can that's a straight a graph you know straight linear relationship so the more incidence of this gene the more they migrated so that's kind of cute that's nice that's interesting yeah um so but you know it's part of why we're different i mean our curiosity has gotten us pretty far it's gotten us into trouble of course but and and with that and with that gene obviously there's a sweet spot because if you didn't have that gene at all you'd just sort of be fat and happy and just sitting in your valley and then when climate change came you're screwed you know that's it you die (laughs) uh if if everyone had that gene 
then everyone's wandering off a cliff and into a cave. And, and, yeah. yeah and but then, don't, don't we all have that gene there? Being like growth is part of being what, human, right? We're, we're yeah. always looking. So that variant, that gene, the gene is in everyone, but the allele or the variation of that gene that's associated with ADHD and risk taking behavior. So they correlate it with people who do base jumping and parachuting and all that. Um, the natural incidence in a population is about 10%. So that's the incidence. So it's not super rare, but not super common. If it were 80 or 90%, then you might be in trouble. Okay, but no. it's too it's simplistic. So I think the real answer to your underlying question is, I don't think we can all leave. It's just not going to happen. But that curious fraction of us, and especially that curious fraction who can be funded by billionaire entrepreneurs like Branson and Musk and Bezos uh, will form a new branch of the human race. So, you know, it doesn't matter whether we all leave or not. I mean, I think we really can take care of the earth and stay mm. here if we're careful and spend enough money on it. And it's cheaper than going to Mars, all of us. Mm. But the fraction that want to leave, these are crazy pioneers, you know, the ones who go to Mars and know they're not coming back, you know, um, they eventually will be a new part of the human tree. Because after, you know, there's this interesting evolutionary thing, the bottleneck effect and the founder effect. There are several genetic effects that kick in if you have a very small branch population, but, but not so small that it's genetically messed up. So mm. you need about 150 people to have a genetically well-mixed population. So yeah, no right. inbreeding. Okay. So they've figured that out. Yeah. So if you have your first, you have your colony, <laughs> your, col your well-selected colony of 120 or so, hundred um and then it goes off and starts to be in a new world very quickly they diverge genetically from humans on earth Ver what very quickly means maybe a hundred generations yeah but, but in the same way as yeah. we have as a race, yeah as but, a but, but quicker races, yeah. but quicker because the it's accelerated by the small size of the branch population so in tens of thousands of years they might be a new sort of meta species. And then who knows what they'll do. Then maybe they'll be the ones that travel around the galaxy and the, the bulk of the Earth population just hunkers down here and stays here or goes extinct or not. Who yeah. knows? So I think that's the most likely scenario. Because we're seeing parts of it playing out already. Yeah. How close are we to actually a human taking steps onto Mars? It's, you know, Musk claims a decade and he's got the best shot. NASA is very timid. NASA has this very staged approach. You know, you bring back samples and you lay down a little infrastructure, but you don't have any astronauts there. And then you have four people, four astronauts there for a short period of time. And you bring them back, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's very slow. And they have to be cautious because their budgets, you know, we talked about. Musk is just taking 120 families with him. Yeah. <laughs> Musk is just taking all his friends, having a huge party. And yeah. so, and, uh, well, he said Drive he, wants, he, said he wants to die on Mars. And I don't see any reason to doubt. T I'll take him at his word, mm. you know, given his age and his wealth. So I think, yeah, I think 10 years to have, you know, the first not permanent not a viable colony so viable colony you know 30 or 40 years minimum people 10 years and it could be china wants to go to mars you know so yeah. uh the united states will get booted into more aggressive posture if china goes to the moon or mars because yeah. they won't want to cede that uh, geopolitical landscape yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Have you seen the film The Martian? Oh yeah. I thought it was really good. Yeah, yeah it was good. good. Do Definitely. you ever watch um, like space films like that and just can't help but think this is so unrealistic, it's nonsense? Yeah, I mean, there have been some good ones, though. I mean, The Martian was good, except for the last scene. That was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. The, the rescue scene, please. Uh, <laughs> and there was... <laughs> the gra- gravity was good. I mean, so... Interstellar? Yeah, gravity, Interstellar. Yeah, I mean, I, I like... And I'm... You know, I grew up on science fiction i mean I, i'm happy to suspend. can you enjoy it i mean yeah i'm happy yeah. to suspend you know as long as it's a good story good characters i can suspend you know my belief or disbelief momentarily or sure yeah. just just don't push it ridiculously <laughs> don't take the piss yeah um one question i wanted to ask is uh, you know assuming that there there are other intelligent life forms that could make it here mm-hmm. what effect do you think that would have on us as a as a, a civilization i think because i kind of feel like we need a visit um it, if you know what i mean like, bring that, us back like, down to earth yeah almost. yeah yeah good pun that yeah very good um <laughs> in that th- it seems like there is we're so caught up in our own ego yeah that i'm or either that or everyone will go insane and They'll be like, well, see, I so unfortunately, I'm gonna give sort of two answers to that. I mean, no, you can only give one. The the, the wet blanket (laughs) answer is from talking about Fermi question is that I think the odds that there's any kind of matching of their capability and ability to communicate or talk to our culture is very low. They're either gonna be, you know, so advanced that just we're not interesting to them, so yeah, um. I think that's the most likely scenario. And it is possible they'll be ill-disposed towards us, in which yeah. case we're screwed. They'll yeah, just we're bang out of luck there anyway, aren't um, we? But it, and, and that all plays out in the popular culture. So one, one of the things that as any science fiction aficionado knows from movies, especially from film and TV, not so much books, is that the aliens are posited in a sort of religious framework of, redemption salvation or damnation you know either the aliens are gonna save us from ourselves you know give us that's like contact you know carl sagan's book that Mm. the knowledge of the alien civilization is what we need to get beyond our bad adolescent state and save ourselves so either they're gonna save us like a godlike figure a benevolent one or they're gonna destroy us the malevolent version Mm. and that's a religious framing of the idea which is just interesting because it's nothing to do with what is really out there it's just our way of thinking of it and it's very explicit i mean you know everyone knows i've seen the articles on this that spielberg did this you know he did this with et which is just the christ story told through a small misshapen alien yeah close encounters of the third kind it's got all these biblical religious metaphors so spielberg was completely transparent about overlaying the alien story onto a judeo-christian religious story and i think a lot of people still think that way yeah it's 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 quite a convenient explanation yeah and it could not accord with reality at all yeah yeah yeah. it's just another way of feeling comfortable about it i mean we're not going to be comfortable about i think it provides a nice way of like a nice way for people to organize their feelings right. and their like lives isn't it the, yeah the, the pur- purpose and so on there's a film called um i think it's called arrival have you seen that about yeah. that's quite yeah about the language that's more to do with the lang- language mm-hmm. i thought that was quite interesting and that was making a good point yeah we talked about that the, yeah. the whole communication issue is is huge you know and people don't 
talk about it as much. They just talk about do they exist yeah. and do we want to know and will we know. They don't talk about, well, how does it really work? You know? Yeah. So yeah. that was what might tell us about ourselves that, you know, it's possible if the ma at least if the mismatch with the alien intelligence is not so extreme that there's nothing to talk about because there's yeah. no, if there is any common ground, it's, yeah, it's going to be informative to us. I mean, or, or maybe depressing because, you know, they've got things right that we haven't got close to getting right. Yeah. But, Fascinating. Yeah. I've got one more question. You probably have, I don't know. You've, you've got, Go on. I've done a lot of talking. Sorry, Rick. Um, time travel. Yeah. What, I mean. I'm in favor of it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah. What are we Where waiting for? What from? are we waiting That's, for? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Um, seems like we would already know about that if it was true or is that just a really uneducated way of looking at it um I, yeah i think physics has got a lot to say about time travel because because yeah. uh i mean physics the, the way the universe works is based on causality you know things that happen have causes and we can identify the causes and they happen in a certain order yeah so physics if you mess with time you have to answer to physics yeah and it's really good physics it's physics that hasn't changed for a century yeah so i think that's the big problem with time travel it just goes against physics yeah just like faster than light travel does warp speed um however you know you leave the door open just a little bit because a black hole is a place where time distortion and time travel are back on the table again like time freezes at the event horizon of a black hole so for someone who falls into a black hole big enough that they could survive and not be ripped apart um whoa 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 oh yeah whoa <laughs> you can't start <laughs> dropping bombs uh, like oh, that okay someone can fall into a black hole supermassive black hole yeah and survive and survive in principle yeah chris because so you mentioned this on me. um Tony Brown just oh, about yeah, this, yeah. Uh, spaghettification. Yeah, and that's the spaghettification. Yeah, yeah, that's the normal. Yeah. That's the normal black hole, the dead star black hole, the ones we've known about for a half century. The, your, the gravity between your feet and your head, or one side of your body and the other, is such that you just you're ripped apart. Yeah, horrible death. But interestingly, as you as you go up the scale of the black holes to so the big ones at the center of galaxies, their mass goes up with their radius, which means their density is actually going down. So the, Understood. In, the yeah. in the physics, and what that means is the stretching force is much more modest. And so the, all those big black holes at the center of all those galaxies are survivable. You could so, fall in. Here's a question for you. Yeah. If you fell in, you survived, wouldn't you be traveling faster than the speed of light if light cannot escape? Well, you'd be probably approaching that speed as you hit the event horizon. So could you theoretically then travel to another... Um, like a much much f further distance in space time so you so what it's so it's a weird paradox so as seen just say you, you had a but just say you had a buddy that <laughs> accompanied you to the edge of the safe distance from the black hole and then you went in and they were watching you what they would see is you you would cheat time you'd be immortal because it would take you essentially forever by their watch to fall into the black hole. I mean, you'd never do it, and they'd get bored and go home. <laughs> so, and you'd and your image, the image oh, of I you falling this, yeah. into the black hole, would be frozen forever. 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 So what? you're what? you're eternal as far as yeah. they're concerned. But to you, 
with your watch or whatever, you just fall into and find out what's inside, you know, without that, dying. That can't be right. <laughs> so that is, yeah. that's the same um, science that is portrayed on Interstellar. Yeah. And that's, and, the, that, and would, that would actually yes, happen. Yes, because the, uh, the, con the main consultant and why Interstellar was a good movie for scientists is their main consultant on the script and the whole concept was Kip Thorne, who's the world's premier gravitational theorist. He won a Nobel Prize for the gravity wave experiment a few years ago. And, you know, he got, obviously they got it right. So, mm. you know, they, they messed with it a little bit, but it was the core ideas, including that one, as, as well as we know black holes, that's true. But remember, with the little caveat, we don't have a complete theory of black holes. Yeah, we you, still, yeah. you still got, you still got yeah. the singularity. So, you, you know, you can't get rid of that. So if you fell into the black hole, you'd have to avoid the singularity or you'd, you're dead that way. It's a treacherous journey, that yeah, black not, hole, isn't it? Not. It's probably best not to be taken. Yeah. Yeah, that idea, that is super hard to get my head around, that there would be an image of you. Yeah. Well, and, and so here's the time travel part that also comes from the theory. Nobody can knows how to test it because how do you get someone into a black hole and how they can't talk? I can't tell you what they saw yeah. anyways because they can't get out. But in principle, in a spinning black hole, there's a, a time-like curve, it's called. So the singularity actually turns into a, a ring in a spinning black hole. And a stationary black hole is just, just yeah, a yeah, spike. Yeah. But in a spinning black hole, it's a ring. And in principle, if you could navigate around the ring, it's, a, it's what's called a time-like curve in physics, which means you can go backwards and forwards in time within the black hole yeah so you could meet past and future versions of yourself within the black hole oh, around the timeline ring but um, again yeah. you couldn't tell anyone you'd, you'd yeah, be having yeah. all these amazing experiences <laughs> yeah. and you oh, this is so cool i got to tell oh i can't i can't tell anyone he went home he's gone <laughs> i'll tell i'll tell past me in a minute yeah exactly and you'll get very bored with yourself <laughs> yeah you again yeah still haven't got changed that's amazing. I mean, uh, this is truly like so fascinating for yeah. me, and like, I think for anyone listening to that, yeah, it's, it's just so hard, hard to get your head around. But it's so humbling yeah. to learn about it. Where can people? F I mean, what what's next for you? I mean, what are you doing? I know you're having a sabbatical now, but yeah, what's what's the plan for you next? Oh well, I'm. Well, can I'm, I come? Well, I'm. Well, while I'm here, I'm doing kind of more mundane things like helping them with online education and physics and doing how to do better science communication because we're worried about the fake science problem. So my, my research project actually is a little different from astrophysics. I'm, uh, I got so, a couple of smart programmers and we're working on using it, making a neural net to detect fake science on the internet, bad science on the internet. Really? So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of crappy science out there, climate science, denial and pseudoscience and superstition and all this stuff and stuff that pretends to be science and yeah. average people, members of the public, they don't always know, they can't always tell. Um, so we're developing lots of misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. we're developing a, a neural net and training it with good and bad science on the same subject, like climate change, and then trying to make a an extension to a web browser so that it sits there in the background. And when anyone goes to a science website, it'll color code flash, you know, like red or orange. Oh, that's likely to be bogus, or mm. or green if it's legit. And then if it's bad, it'll point you to a good site on that topic. So that's what we're trying to do to try and head off a little bit of this tsunami of fake science. Out why there. do you think that, that? Why do people publish any kind of 
fakes on. What is that? I don't see the. What's the point? They get clicks and eyeballs, right? Yeah. Oh, what like clickbait? Yeah, yeah, and advertising, they make money. I mean, there's, it's a business model. Same as the media spouting shit, I guess. Yeah. No, there's a business model of some kind. I mean, grow up, they. Yeah. (laughs) And there's more. And there's more of it. I I made a list just in, I just thought and talked to a few undergrads. We brainstormed. I I came up with a hundred search terms of pseudoscience. You know, like ufos and you know astrology and whatever um on all sorts of subjects creationism things that are not scientific and i did i did anonymous web search and there were one for those just those top 100 terms not everything i could think of there were 1.3 billion web pages and if you google anonymous search on science or scientific there's less there's like a billion so there's clearly more bogus stuff out there than legit astrology is I mean, huge. UFOs. There are 150 I mean, million web pages on UFOs. <laughs> there were some things I didn't even know what they were. There were like 20 million pages on Reiki. I had to look up what that was. Reiki. I don't even know yeah. how you pronounce it. And I thought, like I, don't, I don't even know. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. And oh, there's shit. 20 million web pages. Like, so it's a problem. So that oh, that's God. my little evangelical, but not religious. <laughs> that's project. a tough battle. That's. that's I, I read something about like the number of new blog posts or, or new web pages that get put up every day mm-hmm. I mean I haven't got a figure but it's scary yeah that, like just information in general that is it's too much and yeah and so people need it to be curated they need to have authoritative sources they can't you can't trust everything so what how do you trust it and how do you trust anything yeah how do you trust anything I mean and when you're in science you you have your go-to places, you know, you, the journals you read and the pop, in even the sort of popularized journals that you trust, but they're not many of them. Peer-reviewed, right? Like, yeah. yeah, but if you just go out onto the internet and Google something, you know, you know how flaky a lot of that stuff is going to be. <laughs> it's kind of just, but I think a lot of the time you just believe what you want to believe. Right? That's you true. Believe yeah. What you, like, yeah. What's called the coolest answer? Yeah, whatever fascinates you. Yeah. yeah, a lot of simulation theory. <laughs> that's right. That's what, that's what we're in right now, people. Yes, yes. Rick, do you have any other questions? I mean, I could be sit here literally all day. <laughs> yeah, I could as well, but I think we've got this room, this room's booked yeah. out other, other than that. So um, the only thing I'd quite like to know your opinion on before we finish up is kind of the future of our planet um, environment. Are you positive on the outlook? Are you pessimistic? Are we going to wreck it before we're finished with it? I mean, I, I, it feels like a losing battle week to week or moment to moment, and especially with the current U.S. administration. But I'm, I'm still optimistic because, you know, I think I'm optimistic because most people are aware of what's the problem. They're yeah. aware of the nature of the problem. For, for example, this is even a positive surprise to me. In the U.S., where there's a lot of climate change denial, of course, and it's very political, um, there's there are signs that the average American, like two thirds or three quarters of them, recognize that extreme weather events are associated with global warming. That's interesting to me because that that doesn't follow. So mm. I, I guess I'm an optimist because I think the drumbeat of you know this is what we're doing to the planet's unsustainable is strong. I'm an optimist because even though the U.S. pulled out, you know, 200 countries signed the Paris Accord. That's mm. incredible. Yeah. Dude, you've never had 200 country sign anything anything. you know now okay there's not enough teeth whatever i mean you can criticize it but that that's a good sign so i guess i'm optimistic in that sense and i don't believe the tipping point argument i don't think 
is already too late, so why bother? But, you yeah. know. So I guess I don't believe that. I just looked at enough of the data to not believe yeah. it. So I'm optimistic, and maybe that's a fool's errand to be optimistic because we're so messed up and other. We're so tribal <laughs> and argumentative and yeah. other ways. But yeah. there's there is certainly reason for concern. Yeah. But but that is such a good example of why the, your newest project is needed because yeah that pendulum swings both ways on climate change. One minute. One minute it's complete nonsense and people are saying there's nothing to worry about and the next minute it's too right, late. Right. And and the other I guess the other reason I'm optimistic is uh you know, I'm not optimistic about human nature necessarily, but technology is you know, has been an incredible thing. I mean people occasionally forget that just agricultural innovation and technology in the last century has lifted one and a half billion people out of poverty yeah not all in china and india but a lot of them that's pretty amazing yeah you know i mean that didn't have to happen yeah and so same for medical science yeah medical science too and and the technologies that we would use to understand and eventually combat climate change are pretty impressive too so yeah i mean it's not like technology is going to save our bacon it's not as simple as that of course the people that people at the top have to make smart decisions yeah but the tools will be i think the tools are there so it's 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 possible it feels like and um, i have kids so i have to be right an optimist. you have to be yeah, i have yeah. to be an optimist yeah. um the, the one thing i was reading about very recently was sorry recently was this um growing um disparity between I mean, this has always been a case that the, the wealthy have lived longer than the poor. Right. Um, but it feels like now with technology that that gap might be getting bigger. Right. And especially with um, um, like these super rich tech yeah. Silicon Valley CEOs that yeah. are, um, that seems to be their next go-to Mm-hmm. business model is this life extension yeah. and i know i know um sergey brin and is it is it sergey brin and right. i know there's some kind of shady yeah. whether it's shady or not but like they've created a they put a lot of money into mm-hmm. a, a new business that is all to do with life extension technology do you think that we will be able to achieve that um I guess they're looking for immortality to a yeah. degree, aren't they? And then will that just be available to the very rich? I mean, the, the optimistic, yes, that is happening. I agree, and it's and it's not a good thing because it's going to create haves and have-nots, and yeah. people who live a long time and people who don't, people who get sick and die in horrible ways, and people who don't. Um, but the optimistic read on that is like other innovations. You know, it'll trickle down. down yeah. I mean, just like, uh, you know, space travel. We've been talking about space travel. That's another good example. You know, the first space tourists before Musk and Bezos and so on, you know, the, the Russians put seven or eight space tourists up for $10 million or $20 million each um, on Soyuz to the space station. It was a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. But there's seven of them. Okay, well, in the next tier. Has this happened already? Yeah, that was in the oh. 80s. and I mean, it started in the 90s, you know, and it wasn't I that not well that. advertised. I mean, it yeah. was not a new technology. Yeah, not everyone was, had that much money. It was, it was on old, so, you know, it was old yeah. Soyuz proton rockets, 50-year-old technology. It wasn't that sexy like these new space projects. So the new space entrepreneurs will lower the bar of cost to the point where upper middle class people can do it and eventually a lot of people do it yeah just like aviation you know 1930s yeah, yeah. Yeah, you had yeah, to be super rich right, yeah. to, super rich to fly you know yeah. nobody flew everyone flies now so maybe with the life extension that will happen too of course then you have a bit of a problem you know of feeding 
a planet full of people who aren't dying very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I guess also nice. like education then becomes like if you've got a hundred and twenty year old president, yeah, for example, which you more than likely would do if yeah. that was the case. That how how are they setting the bar for? someone who's just starting school like how does education and yeah. and healthcare and that's going to be a or how do you stop from being it? bored i mean yeah. if you're if you have a leisure class yeah you have decades of healthy life after retirement or you know whatever or just more you're not enough jobs because machines are doing them yeah and, and the society is still rich from then boredom is a kind of a big issue yeah and i guess like being mortal if you were immortal they're not going to be able to stop you from being killed right i wouldn't have thought you're not going to be indestructible yeah. right so that you might be wrapped up in cotton wool the whole time because if you're thinking if you get hit by a car at 30 you've just missed out on 300 years of, yeah you know do you know what it changes right. the parameters yeah, by does, which yeah, you're like yeah. want to live your life like risk would become riskier right does that make sense and like, i guess at the moment we're because we are so fragile everything is so exciting yeah no i mean i the philosophers like that that too the whole issue of immortality how would you behave and it it's mostly a negative thing i mean yeah or yeah. near near immortality i mean it's usually bad yeah. you need to be motivated by loss by yes time yeah, yeah. frames yeah, by challenges that go that don't sit there forever you know they're finite you know those things we sort of set ourselves that's how we're built i think really yeah yeah, I agree. Um, Chris, last, very, very last thing. Yeah. Sorry, I know you're probably dying to go. But um, your newest book, Einstein's yeah. Monsters, Yeah. where can people find that? Oh, Life and Times of Black Holes is subtitle. Um, it's at all good bookstores. As yeah, as I know. and can they buy it online? Yeah, uh, online. on Amazon? Yeah, on online. Audible? It's coming on Audible. Okay. I'm cool. just working with the narrator. And I like Audible books. I mean, I, I always, I'm happy when I get a book narrated because it's a good it's a different audience people who listen to audiobooks you know they yeah. sometimes listen to books they wouldn't buy as a book. do you buy actual books or do you use kindle i use kindle and i have oh, actual i would have books. said books for you well i, I have know. i have both okay. do you do audiobooks yourself or i i've you listened to i've them? just listened to i mean i've had five of my books done as audiobooks but do you yeah. do the no no, no 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 right. they, no i'm not nearly good enough they, they have <laughs> They have professional voiceover people. You know, people wouldn't yeah. know their voice. <laughs> yeah. In fact, you know, when I listen to one of my books done by someone like that, I almost believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, what a pleasure. Okay. Thank you yeah. for inviting us over here. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Excellent. Bye. So there you go. That was Chris. Thanks ever so much to Chris again for coming on. If you want to learn more about Chris, please check out his website, which is chrismp-astronomy.com. Just give him a Google, you know how it works. Chris Imp, I-M-P-E-Y. He's also on Twitter, Imp Chris. Um, and check out his books. Me and Chris um, Walton both bought a book each in preparation for this podcast, and they're great reads, easy to follow as well. I find on scientific subject topics sometimes hard to follow. Um, but Chris has got a, just a way of narrating that um, makes it easy to follow. So yeah, please check out some more of his stuff if you're into it. Also, please go to our website, rate and review, and I'll link to all um, Chris's website and uh, social media handles on there. Um, give us a rating and review, blah, 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 subscribe and all that. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks a lot.